Hello, beautiful people. In today's episode, I'm joined by Stu Fortier, and Stu is someone who helps online writers produce their best work. He's a former CTO and head of a writing group called Compound Writing, which I was fortunate enough to be a member of for three months, and it's an incredible group worth checking out. And in this writing group, Stu has interviewed well-known editors, bloggers, and professional writers, and on the side, he also has a wildly, wildly popular newsletter called Stu's Letter, where he is currently attempting to trade a grain of rice for an actual mountain. More on that in this conversation. And a quick heads up, you guys are joining this conversation in the middle of it, meaning there was no formal introductions or anything like that. I cut it in the middle. So it's just me going on a rant in the beginning, but you will get a lot from Stu in this episode. That's all I got for now. And if you enjoyed this episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda, or feel free to sign up to my newsletter, Tuesday Treasure. You can find that at dannymiranda.com slash Tuesday. Without further ado, guys, let's get to it. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So that's the biggest difference between us and a previous generation, say our, our parents, is that I think in the past, our parents viewed things more from a, a hierarchical perspective where they had a boss, where they looked up to celebrities. Today, I feel a much more peer relationship in terms of we communicate via the internet where you can literally reply to a quote-unquote celebrity and they, they'll reply back to you. And that would never have happened in public in you know 1970 or 1980. There just wasn't that opportunity to do so. Sure, you could send them a letter, but it wasn't the same thing. And so... I think that's something that makes our generation so special is the peer relationship as opposed to a hierarchical one. What do you think about that? Yeah, I love that. I think you nailed it that that the internet is, I think, what's kind of powering this shift because I do think it's a shift. I think um, I think when you have a few companies and um, individuals, not in a conspiratorial way, uh, who own the means of distribution, when it was very expensive to set up the cable television networks across the U.S., before computers were affordable, um, like you only had a handful of companies and people who controlled, you, you can only play so many TV shows in a given day. And so the people who own access to those channels have like a tight filter on who gets, you know, who, who gets featured and who gets uh, broadcast. And if you get on television, like in a lot of ways, you have this, the power dynamic is so shifted because you control the means of distribution and attention can kind of flow one way from you to many people. But the internet obviously completely undermines that. And like now anybody can, like you said, reply to the tweet very easily. There's no friction. Uh, similarly, anybody can go out there and like build their own damn audience, like one by one over you know a long period of time. So like there's way more competition too. So you can't even like rest on your laurels just because you've got a big movie deal. Uh, you kind of have to, if you really want to be famous and maintain that fame, I think there's just way more competition for people's attention. Um, so I think it would lead to a lot of those structures being undermined. Like you mentioned, like, you know, our parents' generation, um, 
because I, I think it's just like harder to actually pull off. I don't think it's impossible to pull off. There's still plenty of, you know, I know Oprah won't reply to my, you know, reply to my tweets, but, um, but I think like a lot of that's being undermined by the internet. And you've written in depth about this. This is something that you're, you're super passionate about it. And you've, you've shown how people have used the internet to create massive success for themselves and, and how they've done that. So talk a little bit about that, that article that you wrote and, just about the the findings that you found about people using the internet to create success for themselves. Yeah, for sure. I think that um, I think we're living in this really strange, like in between time of information being very expensive and costly to distribute. Think of like the printing press and even things like newspapers and books and uh, moving slowly into radio and television, which is like cheaper, but still very expensive to um, build out the infrastructure behind and get people on devices that could actually receive the communications from that technology. So I think like we live in this strange in-between time of like where it used to be extremely costly and for most of human history, extremely slow for information to spread um, to a time in which the vast majority of the earth is going to be on an affordable internet connected device that literally is connected to a network where you know essentially every human being is a, is a node. And like everybody kind of knows this on an intellectual level and anyone who's young, like understands what the internet is on some basic, you know, to some basic extent. But the reality is, is like, we haven't actually seen its impact yet. Like we're just starting to see the clues of what it means for anybody on earth to be able to communicate with anybody else, uh, for anybody on earth to broadcast their ideas and to like, you know, amass some sort of following. And like, you know, if you used to be, um, oh, and sorry, I should add, this is happening at the same time where, you know, a lot of work is shifting to knowledge work. So if you're a plumber, the internet, I think it actually could still be unbelievably valuable for you. And you actually could use it to become like the richest plumber on earth. Uh, but if you were literally going to be going into homes and fixing people's plumbing, you know, you have to do that locally. So you like, it's a physical thing. It's a, you know, it's a labor force of one, you have to be there to actually do the work. Um, something like that, you know, maybe isn't totally disrupted by something like the internet, but knowledge work where maybe I'm paid for my ideas or, you know, I'm whatever, a product manager who uh, thinks through product strategy in a specific industry. You know, it used to be that like, I basically just go get a job in my town. Like typically throughout history, like you just get employed by whatever people are nearby who, who need help. And like, that is the extent of the opportunities that come your way. And if there's no opportunities in your village, like you have to go to the next one. And like, that's how careers worked for like ever. Um, <laughs> Crazy but to think obviously about. on the internet, like that's totally different. Cause like everybody on the planet is on this thing. And if you're super smart or super good at one thing, honestly, if you're just like pretty good, just above average, um, and you're actively broadcasting that online, I mean, that's the equivalent of being in a million villages at once offering your services. Like there's a lot of detail behind that. Like that is the shift that the internet enables. And so if like if you're a blacksmith back in the day, like you can just go do blacksmith stuff in your tiny ass town. Um, now you can like go on the internet and like help out, you know, whatever, 10,000 people who need you and like find the most qualified people that want you and find the work that's most suited for you. And I think, I think like all these big, quote unquote disruptions, they actually like, you can understand them in theory and like be like, why the hell hasn't this actually happened yet? 
Um, and like, I think we always underestimate how long things take. Mm-hmm. And so I'm convinced like, you know, the internet really hasn't been around that long if you think about it. Um, and I'm just convinced that like, we just haven't even seen this play out yet. Like it's just starting. So anyways, in this blog post I wrote, I covered a lot of the people who I think are the early signs of what's to come folks like obviously the stereotype, one stereotypical example might be like a Tim Ferriss who his podcast alone First of all, it gets more distribution than, you know, many major news outlets. Um, but I mean, it brings in enough ad revenue that it, I did the math that it could trade on the NASDAQ and alone company. And his payroll is literally smaller than a convenience store. So in that case, he's leveraging the Internet to create a media business and, you know, go more for the influence, like high margin media business, um, uh, an opportunity like that. But then there's a lot of folks who use writing online for their career and, a really simple example, just like one tiny example, is like there was some 18-year-old college freshman who tweeted about, I think, like a security vulnerability in Zoom and like explained how the vulnerability worked and explained how to fix it. And like the CEO of Zoom, a DECA billion dollar company, maybe more than that now, um, like <laughs> saw this kid's tweet. Obviously, that kid has now been hired. Like he now is a direct line to the CEO of this enormous corporation. And that would have been like extremely hard to do quite a while ago. Like that kid would have been working in mom's basement and like the CEO of no company would ever know his name. Um, and there's just all these stories in between. So anyways, that's kind of like the shift that's happening. I think we're just in the first inning of this thing. And like, I'm convinced that if you're not sharing online, even to some basic extent, you, you quite literally might as well be living in a cave today. <laughs> well, that's an incredible quote that I... I agree with, but it's so interesting. Do do you did this always come to you naturally? And when did you realize, like, oh shit, the internet's real. The internet is going to make a big difference. I was thirteen when I first started my first blog on the internet, and so that would have made you eighteen. Did you know at an early age, like, okay, this is real. This is this is something that's going to uproot society. When did you realize that? If you can remember. Yeah, it's a great question. I know it's embarrassing to say that I definitely don't think I truly grasped this until literally the last like five or so years where I actually like connected all the dots. Because I think um, I think I thought a few things. I think one, I just thought, you know, technology was cool. I've always thought technology is really interesting, but I did not have a sense of context of like what period of history are we living in and like how is it different than the vast majority of history? And when you don't have a sense of context, you don't have a sense of like change and you don't have a sense of like where you stand on this continuum of, of like this, these paradigm shifts that happen every you know, few centuries. And so as a result, you kind of like just take everything at face value as like normal and almost like static. So I was like, well, you know, the Internet's been around for a little while, like pretty much everyone's using email has a Facebook account. stuff like that. So like probably the impact of the Internet has largely played out because it's just like part of society now. And but as I actually like started to learn a little bit more about the history of like just the most basic history of like human civilization, it's like, okay, this is actually not normal at all. Uh Um, This thing is truly new if you zoom out the time frame a little bit. And like knowing that you can actually start to see like see we're actually we're not like in a static place in history. Like we're actually like on this rocket ship, in my opinion, um, that really is moving and it's moving in a direction that I think. You know, it's, it's hard to always predict, but I think we can have some general sense of. Um, so that was one. And then the second thing was like just super straightforward. There was like one specific 
story that really just like utterly rocked my world when I actually just thought about it. Um, and that's the story of my favorite newsletter, which is The Hustle. And, and you know, The Hustle was started by this guy, Sam Parr, who quite literally just like sat in his living room, you know, once a week, once every few days and like started to write this email. In his case, he was writing an email list to help promote a conference. Uh, but ultimately people really enjoyed the emails he was writing and started to just subscribe to like read his thoughts about business and startups and like entrepreneurs. And, um, and so like pretty quickly, you know, he had a few thousand subscribers and then saw the business in this media type approach rather than just doing events. Um, and actually invested in, you know, finding a handful of writers to write a daily newsletter. And over the course of, you know, a couple, two or three years, you know, amassed an audience of a few hundred thousand people uh, who are reading the work and the ideas of, you know, literally in some cases, two or three writers, in some cases, just him. And when I actually thought of like that specific example, I like, I literally started to like Google images of like, what does half a million people look like? Like if yep. you had a half a million people standing out enough, what would that look like? And of yep. course, it's just stunningly huge, huge crowd. And then as they've gotten closer to a million subscribers now, now far on that, um, that scale is even more remarkable. So it struck me like that is just unprecedented and unbelievable that one person you can just sit in your living room in your box on a Sunday and like your ideas can in be injected into that many people. That is unbelievable to me. So then I just like got started to get obsessed with like writing online and newsletters and, and that sort of thing. So I think those are the two aha moments, but way after my 18th birthday, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's incredible. And it's so interesting to think about what we, we see these numbers all these, all the time, like 500,000 subscribers or whatever, you know, like these huge numbers, like even to have a thousand people follow you on Twitter or whatever it may be. I don't know how many people will listen to this podcast other than my mom, probably like a <laughs> hundred, right? Maybe a hundred people if, if I'm lucky, but to think about that, we're sitting in a room now, Imagine us sitting in a room and there's an audience out there at an auditorium and there's a hundred people listening. It's a little overwhelming. You're, you're going to change the way you think about things, but that's what the internet really is. You can't see it. So it's very hard to grasp. But when you put it in the perspective of like 30,000 people, okay, that's a football stadium full of people looking at your work. It becomes a little bit easier to say, "Oh my God, this is really real here." You articulated it perfectly. There's this amazing obscure blog post that I revisit every once in a while, just called "Visualizing Crowd Sizes," and you can look it up. It's quite literally what it claims to be. Like, here's a photo of what 50 people look like. Here's a photo of 100 people, and it goes all the way up to I think maybe 50 or 100,000. And it's funny because, like you said, you hear a number like James Clear, I think, has like 800,000 email subscribers. And like, you know, intuitively, you're like, oh, I think that's a lot. But, you know, there's like, a billion, you know, billions of people on Earth. Like, is that super big? Is that that big? And uh, uh, Tim Ferriss has over a million people on his, um, like, Friday email. And, um, yeah, that's more people than were at the Obama inauguration. So if you Google <laughs> photos of that. It's that was like the largest gathering of human beings in like all of human history, apparently. And like Tim Ferriss emails that many people like every week about mushroom coffee. Like <laughs> it's insane. Um, so I think you're right. I think like, and obviously like you know there, there's plenty of details around like 
yeah, a lot of the times, you know, you only have their attention for the, the three minutes that they're skimming your email. You know, maybe it's not like you have a direct line into their minds or anything like that. But but overall, I mean, the scale and the leverage is just like, to me, tough to fathom. And, and also, I think that's very encouraging when you're getting started out. Like, oh, I only have, you know, a couple hundred people on my email list. Like 200 people, like you said, if you're an auditorium with 200 people and you were giving a speech, like you'd probably be pretty nervous. And <laughs> these are 200 human beings. Like if you need something or like want help on something, like some percentage of them will chime in and you'll have this incredible tailwind uh, that you wouldn't have had if you didn't have that audience. So I think it's very encouraging even when you're getting started out. It's like, don't get discouraged because you don't have a million people following your stuff. Like you have a hundred people, that's actually really interesting and almost like intrinsically worth it in my opinion but um but yeah I, th I think you're right when you actually visualize these things it becomes much clearer so going back to what you were saying about how like you had an aha moment almost with the hustle and seeing how crazy writing online could be was that one of the influences for starting your current venture we can call it compound writing is that why you started it they are, they are inextricably linked. So I think for me, it's kind of hilarious. When I originally went through that, that hustle, um, like truly appreciated what was going on with the hustle. Obviously now there's since plenty of other really popular newsletters that have launched um, doing kind of a similar model. I started to think about like, okay, that, that like as a business, like a paid newsletter or, or excuse me, a newsletter where, that you can monetize um, would be super interesting and compelling. And I think it's it's largely because like the Venn diagram of things that I like doing. I've always loved writing. It's always been a hobby of mine. Um, and then like business opportunities, things that you can like justify spending your time on kind of overlap. I saw like the overlap and was like, okay, sweet. You know, you know I've, there's obviously a ton I've learned about since. You have to really think about marketing and there's like a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into something like the hustle. It's not as easy as just writing the thing. But um but I started to experiment with a few different like newsletter ideas. And one, I think the one that really got the most traction and I've since shifted into compound because I think it's a much better opportunity. But, um, uh, I actually launched a satirical newsletter about the tech industry that a few thousand people subscribe to. It's not, it's not huge, but, um, but that's uh, huge. Like, like we were saying, oh, totally. It's like <laughs> way to me, like way more than I, you know, would have expected. And like, it was a super fun project, but I, I hit up a couple friends who are, brilliant kind of comedy writers. One lives in LA, one lives in New York. And it was like, we need to do the onion for tech and we need to do it kind of does. Like we need to make this a newsletter that, you know, tech people will read because it's a super high value audience. And so we did, we launched this like satirical news, uh, newsletter that came out once a week and you can look it up at techloaf.io. There's some other folks running it now, but it was pretty fantastic. People loved it. It was shared organically. We, you know, paid $0 in growth, got it up to a few thousand people. The projects came up, I wasn't able to give it the time it needed to grow to a, a real place where you can monetize it. But it did start to show me. I mean, we had random on the list, like pitching us to write, like volunteering to help us design the email, a volunteering to help set up the website, help us marketing, like make a sponsor. And that was just from like, again, this quote unquote, relatively small audience of a few thousand people where I was like, whoa, this is like because it's humor and it's a fun kind of project it wasn't like the best business in the world but it really started to illustrate like validate some of those ideas i had that i noticed with with the hustle and some other folks uh writing newsletters so anyways long story short you know i have my own personal blog and i've been building up my own personal list on the side for fun 
And I just started to like get familiar with some of the challenges of like writing online consistently. Because with software, software requires a lot of maintenance, but in general, you know, you can build something once and you can sell it a hundred times. With content, you know, every week you kind of have to ship something new and you have to like put in the work to um, keep creating new stuff that's interesting. And that actually is kind of true of software as well. It's underappreciated, but regardless, you know, after you hit publish, like you're back to zero every week. Um, and what I noticed with like writing online, like one of the big challenges is like, because so many people are starting to share their ideas online, you know, your stuff just has to be really good, like fairly consistently to, to make it. And, um, people just have a short attention span, like, especially with writing, um, you know, where you could jump over and watch TikTok, which would be way more fun. Like <laughs> your writing has to be pretty compelling to like suck people in and really help them find value out of it. Um, so I think, again, it's just like particular to online writing, people are not going to sit down and read, you know, thought my thoughts on blank, like this 5,000 word essay on like people just don't have the attention span. So the challenge is like, how do you write really excellent stuff? And, um, how do you do that pretty consistently? Mm-hmm. And so wh- I, I'm kind of convinced that with writing very often it's, if you have a full-time job, it's pretty tough to ship stuff consistently. But if you do have enough time to write, I think the real magic in writing, like almost no one is ha- is proud of their first draft, and the real magic comes with great editing and feedback. So, like, mm. you know, when you've actually kind of vomited out this first draft, how do you then go and like chop this thing up to make it distilled down to the super valuable stuff and um, make that the thing that like the process that really matters? And so, anyways, a good friend of mine, Dan Hunt, kind of pitched me on this idea of like, hey, we should like start a group with writers who basically swap feedback on each other's work. And like, you know, no one really has the budget to hire a professional editor. Um, and like, you know, when you ask grandma to review your stuff, like she's pretty supportive and not actually giving you constructive feedback. Um, and every time you have to ask your friends for feedback, it's kind of like you're burning an ask and typically they're blindly supportive as well. So all that to say, like, okay, we should like start this group where we only let in folks who are really talented writers. And the whole idea is that they edit and contribute to each other's work. And there's since been a lot more thinking that we've put into this. Um, but like, that's the core idea, editing and feedback. Like that's make, let's make that the core value prop for the group and everything on top of that's kind of, kind of gravy. So anyways, that's what launched compound writing and I'm happy to get more into it, but that was like the long winding story of, of launching the first version of it. Yeah. I absolutely love hearing that. And it's very cool to see how your thought process evolved and how you just came up with that idea and, and why you came up with it from my perspective as someone who's used the service and who's someone who has been in the group, it is everything. It, it is an awesome service to use an awesome way to improve your writing and, and to see that feedback. So hats off to you for doing it right and doing a great job. Um, talk a little bit about what you've also done with that group is you get some amazing writers to not only be in the group, but also to just give you their time so that you can interview them and and that they could help people who are writing in the group. So talk to me a little bit about how you've allowed or how you've been able to get such great writers to be able to interview and, and talk to them. Is it like how do you how are you doing this? Because I've been so curious about that. Well, yeah, first of all, appreciate the kind words. And secondly, I think like, I, I don't know if it's, um, 
you know, there's some there's some nice tailwinds going on. It's COVID. Everyone's locked at home. It, you know, people are really uh, don't mind spending more time on Zoom and stuff like that. And people are you know stuck at home looking for stuff to do. Yeah, I think there's some nice little tailwinds that we're riding. But overall, I think the um, I think I think that writers have some degree of empathy and appreciation for how challenging the work is. And oftentimes I think they're still trying to work through it themselves. This is like probably one of the biggest things I've learned interviewing all these amazing writers is how many of them are still, uh, still fear the blank page, still don't feel like they've quite figured out their voice are still trying to figure out, you know, how to keep shipping good stuff. And I think, um, you know, often what looks like a impenetrable fort from the outside um, you know, often there's still a lot of work and, uh, you know, a lot of effort that's being put in behind the scenes. So I think, um, I think first of all, because of that struggle, a lot of people are just be very willing to be generous and to help out other folks. So that's like one, I think, reason why a lot of these fantastic writers have been, you know, generous, generous enough to join us for calls, generous enough to do a lot of these um, workshops with us. Um, the other thing is I think a lot of writers kind of toil away in obscurity. And they actually do, even though they're pretty well known, they do a lot of their work kind of by themselves in a vacuum. And um, so long as the members in Compound are excellent writers, which we try to like filter for very tightly, and so long as they take it seriously, um, the folks we interview are kind of excited to join the group and to like bounce some ideas off the folks in the group uh, because of that, because they know the other people in the group are dedicated to the craft. Um, they know the other people in the group could help augment some of their work and help improve the quality of what they're doing. And it's really not, you know, writers on the internet, writers don't really compete in a lot of ways because like the surface area is so huge of what can be written about. So it's like, it can kind of be this non-zero sum game where folks can truly help each other out. And um, so I think the other filter there is like, you know, are there other high quality members that these writers can gain value from, even if they're not folks who are, known, which I think is really cool about writing. Um, you don't need to have high status to give great feedback on a piece of work. You don't need to be famous to give thoughtful critiques on a blog post. Like you just need to be like kind of sharp and thoughtful. And there's a lot of unknown people on the internet, like in the world, um, who don't have like 20,000 Twitter followers, but who are just as sharp, just as thoughtful and just as willing to help um, as somebody who does. So anyways, I think these like well-known writers actually just appreciate thoughtful feedback from wherever it comes. And we kind of designed this group that revolves around uh, editing and feedback and contribution. So um, I think those are a few of my theories of like why these people have been so generous, um, you know, and, and, and joined us. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy because what you speak to is like something that I feel every writer struggles with is like, I'm not a writer, you know, like I, or this piece isn't good enough, or am I really any good at all? Even if you have had pieces that do well or pieces or people tell you you're a good writer, it still is difficult to just be able to convince yourself that what you're doing is still good work. Um, and maybe that's just my own internal struggles that I'm projecting out into other people, but that's something that I've seen time and time again from writers is is the belief that they're yeah. not good enough or the belief that uh, you know, I think what it is, this is what I think it is. And let me know if you agree is like writers look up to other writers and they see other people's work that they admire and they naturally intuitively compare their own work to that of someone else. And when you do that and your comparisons for your writing are, are amazing, amazing writers, 
then it could make you look as if your own stuff isn't that good. But someone else who's reading your stuff, their comparisons might be other people who are – they're not comparing your work to. They're just comparing you to you. And I think that's why we fall into the trap, particularly as writers, as just kind of like self-deprecating. What do you think about that? Oh, I love that. I, A, I totally agree. I think like comparison is like this this almost like inescapable – urge that we all have and not you know not only are you comparing yourselves to some of you know the greats obviously when something's been published it's like the final work and you what you're seeing the only thing you're ever seeing with most writing is the final work and you have no context on what actually happened behind the scenes um and meanwhile you're sitting there with the blank google doc being like jesus like this first draft sucks and like (laughs) i don't even know what i'm trying to say and little do you know many of those writers um behind the scenes had that exact same experience coming up with this genius work. It took them three months. Like it took them 12 drafts. Like their editor ripped the thing in half the first time they read it. And obviously you don't know that cause you're just seeing the finished movie. You're seeing the final production and you're, you're never seeing the actual behind the scenes stuff. So that's one. And, and I agree. It's cause like, it's the only data point you have is the published piece. Cause like most writers are not posting a three hour live stream of them editing. Like you don't act, you just have no information of what's going on behind the scenes. So yeah, default information you have is the published work. The published work is fantastic. So you end up comparing yourself to it and you feel pretty bad. Um, again, not knowing what actually went on behind the scenes to make that work possible. I think the the second thing I would add, and this is a weird one, cause I'm still trying to figure out quite how to like, artic- I haven't quite figured out how to articulate it. But um, I think the the second thing that happens is when you, it's, I think, the mo- one of the most challenging things, and really as a creative person, and frankly, who knows, maybe as a human being, um, is understanding that the world is very flexible and that your place in it can just kind of appear and be created out of thin air. And so, as an example, like you might read all these, Tim, uh, uh, Tim Urban from Way Wide, to me, is a good example. Um, he's a guy who writes about artificial intelligence, you know, renewable energy, um, all these, you know, some Elon Musk company, all, all that sort of thing. It's a bit of a stereotypical example because he's so popular, but I think he's, it really is a great example. So he writes about stuff that, I mean, literally every day, thousands of people write about. And I mean, th- this is, these are just not new topics. And furthermore, like there's plenty of really interesting writing. And like for the past 20 years, there's probably been a lot of super interesting books and long form essays written about artificial intelligence and the singularity and whatever. And so like, it, it seems like this stuff is pretty well covered, but how he approached articulating these ideas was just totally new and, and new in the sense of it was a combination of humor, you know, self-deprecating writing style, uh, really funny images and graphics and, you know, deep topics where he does a serious deep dive on something very important. And like that little Venn diagram that he kind of created um, has just never been seen before. And it just kind of blew up. I mean, probably everyone listening to this will know who the blog Wait But Why and probably has like encountered some of Tim Urban's work. Uh, but to me, he, he's an example of like, that's not an example of the right way of like, this is how people should write. To me, it's an example of like how you can just appear and your work can just enter kind of the hallways of greatness, if you will, um, just because you actually like did something kind of original and that was only you could do. And so I think the other challenge with writing is like, you have this very static view of the landscape 
okay, this is how people write about business strategy. Okay, this is how people write about product management. This is how people write about AI. And you get kind of like, you pigeonhole yourself into boundaries that were defined by other writers who were just willing to be original. Um, and you, if, if you let that fear lock you up, you won't come up with these original ways of framing things like a Tim Urban does as, as again, just one really powerful example. Um, so I think that's the other thing. It's like you, you don't feel like you neatly fit into any of these boxes and it's very discouraging and it, you end up kind of losing some self-confidence. Um, but I think the opposite reaction is necessary. Like, okay, how could I combine the things that I like uh, in a way that's just going to like, people will look to, they'll compare themselves to me once I have some success. So long winded answer, but I think dude, that's another factor. Dude, I just got chills from listening to that part because what you speak to is the uniqueness of the individual and how important it is to embrace your own uniqueness and how comparison is is just a false game you're playing and you yes. no one can beat you at being you and if you truly embrace that and you truly start to figure out as a writer okay how can i be more like me how can i be how can i present the real me onto the page how can i do that then that is a competitive advantage that other people can try to copy, but they're never going to succeed at that. So just an incredible, incredible point. It's something that I'm going to think about for a long time in the future. I think you're spot on. And I think it's, you know, I do think it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of like, it looks obvious in hindsight and like, you know, people will reverse engineer how you did it and it will seem so obvious, but you're exactly right. It's like, I love that. Uh, you know, I love that quote, like nobody can compete with you on being you. And of course, you want to make sure you're providing value to folks and you don't want to get too, you know, too into yourself or whatever and like lose sight of how you can use your uniqueness to help other people. But I think that's really the challenge. It's like, what is my area of genius? Again, she's another, I think, term that's making the rounds. Um, how do I really just like develop some confidence that my, in, that my like tastes and intuitions are right. And obviously like Tim Urban blogged in obscurity for a few years. You can go look up uh, underneath the turban, which was his first blog like 200 people followed it, just as friends. I mean, he was writing for years, doing his Seven little stick years. figures. Exactly, yeah, doing like his stick figures and yeah, for literally years. Um, and kind of like figuring out his own unique spin on blogging and, and writing online and just like following his gut a little bit. And then I think if, if I was doing my own little narrative, you know, retrospective on him, it seems like he just spun all of that into Wape Y, which was like, okay, I, I kind of have my voice figured out. Now I'm going to go apply it to these really interesting areas. And by that point, he's just developed such a unique way of communicating ideas that like no one can touch him. And now, you know, he's just one of a many, one of a series of ways that you too could blog. But of course, if you just copy him, it's going to be lame. Like you have yeah. to do something that will seem surprising. Yeah. And what I love about that story that I heard about first from Tim Urban on Tim Ferriss's podcast was just that. He wrote for seven years on his own blog for fun because he just enjoyed doing it and it just made sense to him. And And it's really – you see Wait But Why and it really was an overnight success, Wait But Why. Wait But Why, you have Tim Urban. He goes to some random location and he creates the first blog post and the first blog post gets something absurd like 500,000 unique visitors and that was – his first blog post was more popular than I think any one that he created in the next two years or something crazy. Point being 
that that overnight success of Wait But Why was forged in the seven years of him writing online for fun, where he created his voice, where he figured out what he, he liked to talk about. And he just knew if he could just put all of his mind into one topic, into just focusing all of his energy on one blog post, he knew it would, it would do really well. And it's really cool to, to think about that that success, that seven years that he put in, that, that one success that he has with Wait But Why was forged with seven years of, of work. Yes. You know? It's so true. And, and I think, um, again, I know maybe a lot of these quotes are now just in the zeitgeist and people are familiar with them. But um, I always think back to that the Ira Glass quote around – you know, when you're first writing, when you're first writing stuff, when you're first doing creative work, mm-hmm. you know you've got killer tastes, but very often your work itself does not live up to the standard that you know you want to get to, and like typically that's where people quit. Like, you, oh, okay, I suck at this. Like, I'm just not, I'm not a creative person, or whatever the story is, and you kind of give up on it and you move on. And obviously that's kind of a shame because if you do have enough intrinsic motivation, like you mentioned, you just kind of basically toiled in obscurity. Although I'm sure he was having some fun with it. Um, until wait, but why, when he, when he finally was able to apply these skills in a way that really worked, um, you know, most people just give up before they get there. And so like, we don't actually understand the potential and the genius that a lot of folks possess because you just kind of give up or you forget about your why. And I think I, I totally get it. I think it's very tempting to, to quit. Um, but yeah, there's like this kind of hump that you have to get over, uh, to, to finally get to a place where you can do true original work. And that's why I love the idea of compound writing right? Your writing group is like compound. You're writing and the more you write, the more it compounds on the internet and the more your skills increase and the more chances you have and leverage you have and and connections you can draw from and people who get drawn into you. It's like compound is really what writing is all about and especially writing on the internet. So that's why I think it's such a brilliant name and and certainly speaks to the truth of what it, of what writing on the internet really is. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, your your ideas compound and build on each other because if if you're attracted to a few topics, you can constantly be kind of citing your work and building this mind map of of how you think. Um the the paper trail, if you will, that you leave behind you really compounds because a lot of the I mean, I still get cold outreach on a few posts that I've done here and there. And, and like actually the post about sharing your ideas online, I've gotten, you know, the most traffic in the last months on that post um, than I did when I first launched it and promoted it. So there's like this great long tail effect um, or, or this great kind of delayed compounding effect where a lot of your content over time can actually become more valuable or continue to be valuable far after you hit publish. That's just the first step. And so um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally, you know, it's not always, you know, there's plenty of content that folks produce that, that just, to, you know, is, stays in obscurity <clears throat> and often, you know, your best posts are the ones that outdo, you know, 80% of your next post. There is a power law type effect, but overall the trend is that these things build on each other. And like, if you continue to invest in it over a long period of time, um, that's where you start to actually see the real rewards. But obviously it, it does take a while. It's like the marshmallow test. And like, you know, most people are just going to quit and like, you know, naturally so. Um, but if you can hold out, like all things that compound, the rewards come in the back half. So, so let's talk about that real quick. What are some of the ways you believe that someone can stick with it? 
Yeah, I'm so this this comes from being a chronic procrastinator, but I need fear as a motivator and <laughs> particularly like, you know, accountability is the nice way of saying it. But like fear and guilt and shame are the honest uh, like tools to use. I and so this honesty. is totally it's just like I think it can be useful here at least. But the this is the whole reason that I launched my personal newsletter. It was not, I did not have a strategy. It was just like, I'm gonna write something that I find interesting every week, but I know that I will not write every week if I don't tell people that I'm gonna do this. Um, and if there's not you know, folks on the other end of this, like waiting for it every Sunday. So I, I was just like, I know myself. So for maybe like step one, know thyself. I know that I will, this is, it's like skipping the gym. It's like the easiest thing to kick off the to-do list in a busy day. Um, so anyway, I had to develop forcing functions and for me, that was like shipping, um, shipping something every week. I think the other, th- frankly, that was like the big one for me, like publicly claim, like publicly holding yourself accountable um, to a specific goal. So maybe it's I'm going to do one podcast a week. I'll write one newsletter. I'll publish one thing on YouTube. Um, it's amazing, like the energy that uh, you can generate, and just like you know, post it on Facebook or something. Ask ten friends to sign up, and like honestly, problem solved. So that's one. I think the second thing, and this is what I've really learned with Compound, is surrounding yourself with people who are also doing similar things. It's like any, you know, any behavior that you want to start doing more of, just being around people who do that thing, you know, good or bad, um, will just just kind of help like nudge you in the direction of doing it more often. Like we're very mimetic creatures, and if everyone's like shipping and writing stuff, you know, it is very motivating. You're like, okay, other people are getting this done; they're all so busy. Like, what's my excuse? And you really get motivated to get stuff done. So. I think in Compound we we have we have we've like explicitly set up some accountability stuff like set some goals and I'll check in with you and I think that stuff's really useful. But I think like the the second order thing that actually ends up being very motivating is just seeing other people do the behavior you want to do, seeing that it's possible, seeing that other people are consistent. I think that's you know another great way to just like you know motivate yourself. Awesome, I love those too, and I, I think they're super useful. Switching gears a little bit is. You've edited so many posts in Compound. And so I'm super curious. Like your feedback is just amazing. And but you you have so many pieces of advice and you're you're everywhere on the feedback and editing side of things. What are the biggest mistakes you found from all this editing? Oh, I love this question because I think um I am convinced that the biggest hack of for writing and like improving your writing like the the most efficient way to become a better writer easier said than done but i think it's to actually edit other people's writing i think it can be very hard to actually edit your own objectively so it's easier to edit other people's stuff and um so i think like one thing i would advise folks to do if you can if you have some writing inclined friends like offer to be their editor because you'll be pretty astounded at like how useful seeing and noticing, you know, whatever the issues that uh, other folks encounter as they write is like just spectacular for starting to find your own blind spots. So a, I think just like in general, um, keep that in mind as you like, think about how do I improve as a writer, but more specifically, like what are some of the things that most folks, um, who are writing, what are the kind of the mistakes they make? First of all, I'll just say, there's nobody who writes a perfect first draft. So when you write, the whole point of a first draft is to just, it's like, you're just like figuring out the plot of land where you're gonna dig for some diamonds. 
and hoping, you know, there might be a few diamonds there. So I think with the first draft, like at base, you really don't beat yourself up over it. All you're trying to do is lay some ground where there might be a few diamonds worth kind of digging up and, you know, pulling up. So that doesn't mean don't invest in it. It doesn't mean don't work hard on it. But I think um, don't beat yourself up if it sucks. So I think every, every you know, nobody is thrilled with their first draft. Um, the specific, like most common things that I see in compound when someone actually like ships a draft, I kind of came up with like five of what I think are the most like consistent um, uh, points of feedback that I give. The first, and I am so guilty of this, but since joining Compound, starting and, and being a member of Compound, um, I think got much better, are throat clearing intros where you spend literally like five paragraphs explaining, like giving a backstory on what your idea is. And the reality is like if you are you know, Barack Obama and this is your autobiography and everyone's already super interested in your life, you can afford to clear your throat and like <laughs> people will stick around. Uh, but most of us, like people are just not that interested in what we have to say, like frankly. So like, and often you're just not actually adding a lot of signal and people are online. Again, TikTok is one click away. They'll bail on your stuff if it's not interesting. So first and foremost, short intros, give the juice up front. There's this great writer, Lenny Rachitsky, who, who gave this advice um, in one of the compound workshops, which is like, um, just give away the goods right away. Like just don't even, uh, that, that, the goods can be a whole bunch of different things, but like, just give it right away and then see if people want to stick around because people just don't have patience. Um, the second thing, I mean, this honestly might be just as frequent is the use of very like abstract language. And sometimes this makes sense. Like sometimes your audience does use these uh, abstractions and sometimes like you're writing about a very complex thing that does require a high degree of abstraction to make sense. But like a lot of folks, it's very tempting to like try and sound smart and like use broad sweeping statements, like broad language that captures a lot of ideas, but it's actually like totally useless for the reader because they don't actually know what you're talking about. And um, so just like keep it simple, right? Literally write like you're writing for a kid. And I know it, it's like so hard to do because you don't, you, people think that simple is dumb, like simple equals dumb, but I think like the exact opposite is true. Um, so anyways, avoid this abstract language. That is super common. The other, thing that again i'm guilty of all these things myself is um not having a clear intention with a piece so it's like okay you're writing this blog post it's pretty amazing like how hard it is to actually get clear with like what the hell is my intention writing this thing and your intention can be all sorts of things it might be like i want to move people to tears and tell a beautiful story uh, or i want to give people practical advice they can go use to improve their email marketing funnel like you can like get really you can be flexible with what the intention is but you do have to state it and you do have to know it yourself so for me like with my why you should share ideas online post i kind of put the intention in the title you know i want to convince you of the opportunity of sharing your ideas online and if nothing else i want to at least articulate what that opportunity is um and without that intention that post really could have been way too broad and and so you, ha you do have to get clear of like what am i trying to achieve and then the last the last two are, are pretty short is like overusing um, like caveats and qualifiers. I think um, we, we wanna make sure that we're not misinterpreted or misconstrued or misunderstood. And I do think that's very well intentioned. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But typically when you're, you know, if you're tweeting or if you're writing a blog post, like people are just not gonna get, they don't, they just don't, they're not out there to get you. And like, and they don't need a perfect construction of your worldview. So like, just get to like the, the meat of what you're trying to say and then figure out the caveats later. Like, I'm not saying this, and in this, in this situation, this might not be true. Like, don't 
bore people with that up front. Just like get to the meat of it, go for the jugular. If people are interested, great, like add those caveats later. Um, final actual thing, and this is like a theme I think throughout all of these is like don't lose momentum. So just like when you're reading your own work, think of like where things are about to get a little bit dry and intense and like yeah, hard to get through and just like inject a little bit of momentum. Like, okay, if I'm about to break down and very, uh, very detailed breakdown of like Tim Ferriss's cost of his podcast, which might be kind of dry or boring. Like, let me just inject a teaser of why this is interesting. Like you, you know, you won't believe how much revenue he makes with this little expenses. You know, I'll get to that later. You can just kind of inject little things that if you're about to kind of share something dry but important, um, we'll keep a reader, you know, it'll remind them of why they should care about this, of what's coming next. And you can do this in very subtle ways, but just kind of when you're reading over your own work, it's like, where could I inject a little bit of momentum just to like keep people really kind of enthralled? Um, so that's the actual list. I've, I've broken all my rules by making that way too long. <laughs> Dude, I love it. And I, I can't believe this is free and that you're just giving us this gold for, for nothing. I mean, this is incredible. And thank you so much for, for breaking that all down because, you know, I've, I've read your, your writing on this specific topic, but it's, it's so interesting because when I hear it again, I feel like I learned something new. So I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's like repetition. And it's like, that's a good reason for someone who is writing something, right? And you're like, oh, well, everyone else has already written about this or I've already written about this. Well, maybe someone didn't get it the first time or maybe it didn't become clear to that person. So I think there's something to be said. Going back to your point about writing online is like you got to put yourself out there and, and don't be afraid to repeat yourself or say something that you've already said before in a slightly different way because that might hit someone in a different way and that might be useful as well. Yeah, I think you're I, I think you're so right. And so much of this stuff is like stuff that I'm just reminding my myself about. And like it's really easy to forget. And you know, I've heard it a million times, it's easy to forget. I think um I remember like one of my favorite tweets of all time, I think was from uh Corlin Allen from from Indie Hackers. And basically he was saying like probably a lot of the most useful advice that we get is stuff we've already heard a thousand times. Like we just need to actually do it. And we're, you know, we're always looking for the next thing and we're looking for the next hack or whatever. And it's very tempting because we think once we've heard something that we know it. But of course, like actually putting something in practice is the challenge and doing that as a, a habit and part of our, you know, just how we operate. I think it's really hard. And I think like you do have to like repeat things to yourself, remind yourself of like the quote unquote basics. I think this is why like stating things that are super obvious to you is actually like very valuable, especially if you're like a, a someone who's creating content online. Like the stuff that seems painfully obvious to you is actually like the stuff that a lot of your audience follows you to learn about. And like, it's not really part of their day, day to day maybe, um, or like, you know, your specific insights. So stuff that seems super obvious to Ben Thompson is probably unbelievably helpful for his readers. And so anyways, kind of, kind of to your point, right? I think like, I think it's pretty hard to truly bore people or feel like a broken record online. Cause I think a lot of folks are just like, yeah, they want you to share those basic things that matter and uh, to be reminded of those things. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Absolutely. And it speaks to the uniqueness element of like, you're sharing you what's obvious to you might not be obvious to someone else. And it actually may be the connector that allows them to make an insight or to come up with something that or to do something that they know they should have been doing. 
You know, and so I, yes. I relate to that 100%. So, Couldn't agree more. So changing gears a little bit, you currently, at the time of this recording, you currently have this mission to trade a piece of rice for an actual <laughs> mountain. And I would not be – I couldn't go through this podcast without asking you why you came up with this idea, how you came up with it. And just what are, what were you thinking, my man? And I'm <laughs> I'm super excited to follow this journey, but it's an incredible thing. Talk talk to me a little bit about that. Totally. So I, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not the first person to attempt something similar, and hopefully not the last person to succeed. But um, <laughs> there was a guy I think in like 2004 who traded like a red paperclip, and folks may know this guy, but this this guy who traded a red paperclip uh, all the way up to a house. And so you like you know, traded it for like a cool pen and he traded that pen for like a cool doorknob and he traded the doorknob for like, you know, an old Walkman or something just like went on whatever. I don't know if it was Craigslist or the Canadian equivalent. I think it was based in Canada um, in 2004 and like started to make these trades and ended up like I think a year and a half later, like getting a house, like someone traded him a house. Wow. And I so I read about that a while ago and I, I don't know why I, I was randomly reflecting on it uh, recently. But I thought about like, first of all, whoa, that's that's badass. Um, secondly, like since that happened, the internet has matured so much that you could probably make. I mean, you could probably do that again, but make it like way bigger. And um, and there's you know there's some other folks maybe who've tried similar things. So I just started thinking like, okay, I write a lot about the power of the internet. I write a lot about the power of like storytelling and communication. Um, so could I kind of like run this experiment again? You know, 15 years later with and try to maybe go a little bit more extreme and you know who have to, who knows where it goes but like what would be the more extreme version of this and i was like you got to start smaller and you got to end bigger so <laughs> instead of a paper clip i literally just walked around my apartment this is like this is what happens when my fiance was is visiting her family and i'm here by myself i'm like this is the shit that i think about um so i go i'm like walking around my apartment like ah like a piece of paper like you know a pen no no and I like open up the pantry and I see like a bag of rice and I'm like, perfect. Yeah, I'll start with a bag of rice. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I'll start with a grain of rice. Oh my God. So I just bought like a grain of rice. Like, okay, I don't know who's going to trade me for a grain of rice, but like there has to be someone. It's the internet. So on my newsletter, what I want to do actually, a side note here is that I want to see how far I can get just with my personal newsletter before I announce it more publicly. So I haven't actually like I haven't mentioned it on Twitter. I haven't done anything. Um, I haven't like promoted a, bl- a blog post about it. So I'm like just trying it out on my email list to see how far that tiny corner of the internet can go before uh, going bigger. But anyways, announced it in email. I was like, okay, here's the idea. I'm gonna try and trade this thing up all the way to get like a literal mountain. Like <laughs> keep trading this thing up until someone trades me like the land rights to a mountain. And there's a whole there are a whole bunch of like constraints around a mountain because like. Most big ass mountains are part of like national, you know, like it's like federal land. Like I'm not going to be able to get one of those. Um, but a mountain is technically anything that's like elevate goes 2,000 feet above base elevation. Oh wow! So I went on all these websites and like you can, there's like some there's like some very shitty mountains that you can get for like 150 grand in like Kentucky. And I was like, okay, like that's pretty much how much a, an affordable home would cost. So actually, like at a minimum, some of these mountains are very much within reach. It's not like you're trying to get the Matterhorn 
um, you can get something like that it might actually be doable in the same way that that paperclip guy got a house. So then I was like, okay, that was like the final bit of research I did. Like, okay, this can happen. Like, let's do it. So I announced it to my list. And within, um, you know, frankly, within a few hours, my email goes out on Sunday, but definitely by Monday morning, you know, I had like 25 offers or something for the piece of rice, for the grain of rice. And wow. everyone's like, this is awesome. Like, I'm so stoked to follow along. And the other thing I said was like, you know, if you offer to help out in any way, which is true, like when we get this mountain, you will be invited to the opening party at the mountain. So even if you like offer trade, but it, I don't make the trade, um, you will still be invited to what's now named Rice Mountain uh, for the opening <laughs> party. So anyways, the, the trade that I accepted, was a, I felt like it was perfect for a few reasons. Um, the, Drew Riley, the guy who I think we're both, we both know, um, writes this newsletter called Trends. Trends is basically like he spends a ton of time researching these up-and-coming startup trends, writes these really succinct, high-quality reports on the landscape and like how to take advantage of it, and offers a free version of the report, but also offers a paid version where it goes much deeper. And um, he offered to trade like a paid Trends VC report for the rice which I was like, this is perfect because A, it doesn't cost him anything to like set up a promo code for me. So he's not like in the red on this trade. Um, B, it's an, it's, it's a, it's an information product. So like, it, this is just cool because my whole thing is like the internet is super powerful and like value can be just created on the internet. Um, so I thought that was great. And it's just like, see, very easy to trade this thing and that other people will definitely want it. And I, I don't need to like ship a big item to somebody or whatever. So that was the first trade. I'll be announcing, I, I offered that last week. Again, a bunch of offers came in really quickly. So I'll be announcing the actual next trade in my newsletter next week. But I will be br going from the physical, from the digital world to the physical world for this next trade. And I'm convinced it may take a while, but the paperclip guy did this in like 17 trades or something in that ballpark. Like wow. paperclip to house. So originally I was like, this is probably gonna take like five years. But now I'm like, this might actually be something you could do in like, you know, 30 trades potentially. So, wow. anyways, that's the backstory to uh, trying to trade a grain of rice for a literal mountain. Holy smokes. And th I can already see the headlines. Man conquers rice mountain. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's incredible. I, it's just goes to show, right? The power of taking an idea that's already been done and not, Saying to yourself, oh, I can't do that, but instead saying, oh, I could do that too in a slightly different way that is more like me or in a more extreme way or whatever. It's really cool how you, instead of you know, saying, oh, I can't do that, you leaned into it and was like, this has already been done, so I could do it even better. I could do it more like me or I could change this up. And I think that's such an important point about the internet and about life in general, right? It's like... Take what you see and that you like, copy it, and change it slightly. I love I love your framing there. I think you're just so right. Like I think the, one of the most discouraging thoughts in the world is this has already been done. Um, you know, therefore, case closed. And I think that's just totally false. I think like like I mean, what are you talking about? You know, there's so many different ways to do something that um, your unique way is what's valuable. Uh, very very often is what's valuable. And like I don't know, it's just like. I think especially with maybe like something like starting a startup or a company very often like competition or um, the interchangeability of two things is like really misunderstood and overvalued or like over indexed on. And that like, like you just said, your unique spin on something actually ends up being what's valuable and ends up carving out this very distinct place in the world. 
um, versus I think, you know, whatever, a stereotypically like zero sum mindset where, um, yeah, this has been done before. I'm not going to do it. Or this competitor is already better at me than this. When in reality, maybe the thing that you're trying to do is actually distinct and is more specific. And like you, there is room for you. Um, yeah, I think, I think that there's, there's almost always a way to kind of wedge yourself into the world, even if it looks like it's been done before. Hmm, I love that. So talk to me a little bit about creating compound writing as a group and what some of the biggest misconceptions you had before starting it and after, because I'm very curious about this. Ooh, that's a great question. I think I have my answer. Um, so the big, so I'll start with what we're trying to not do or very early on compounds, not very old, but, but a few months ago and we were starting to really think through it. Um, there is, the, I think a lot of Twitter is like one of the most amazing things in the world, but I think, um, a lot of folks are starting to think about like, um, these more niche communities where how can I go behind a, a whether it's a paywall or some other sort of vetting process and hang out with more like-minded people, um, who either share my interests or my skills or my, my goals or whatever it might be. Um, and how do I become part of like a really curated group around like specific interests or things that are important to me? And, um, and then, you know, Twitter can do that to an extent, but Twitter's more like the open hangout where you can get connected with a lot of different people. Um, how do I really surround myself with folks in this one area of my life that's important right now? And I think, um, like this has been done before in, in a ton of different industries to, to riff a little bit off the last idea. Like there's plenty of, if you want to, um, uh, if you're like an entrepreneur or something, there's a bunch of different like paid communities and paid groups that you can be a part of to like surround yourself with other entrepreneurs. And, um, and like, there's a lot of different trade organizations where if you're like working in a certain industry or a certain job function, you can uh, join a trade industry and be a part of, you know, hang out with like vetted peers in your group. Um, but I think very often what happens with like communities and especially, I think it's a particularly bad with with new online communities, is a clear lack of purpose in that like just getting a bunch of X type of people together, frankly, is just not enough. I think it can work and I think you, like it's fine. You can get uh, you can get far enough with it. Um, but I think it like kind of sucks. Like I think <laughs> you have to have a clear reason to engage. Like why are we getting together? Is it to mentor each other? Is it to like share advice? Is it to help each other find new business? Is it to like, I think everyone's tempted to just like, well, the opportunities will create themselves. Like I just want to bring together awesome people. I think that's just the first step. And I don't think that is like the end of the story. And I think it's actually the easy first step. I think the real challenge is like, what is the clear purpose for this group to exist and to um, like, why would you engage with this group on an ongoing basis in a meaningful way? And so with Compound, to get to your question, like the thing that we honed in on is like, we are here to help each other edit and contribute to each other's work. There's a ton of other more interesting, like long-term things that that can evolve into. But fundamentally, if people are not like sharing drafts to get other people's input on, and if members who share drafts are not also giving input to other members' uh, work, then this is just like a fluffy Slack group that just like, does water cooler conversations all the time, uh -huh. which I think again, is like perfectly fine. I think like there's, I'm part of some of those and like, there's still <laughs> the interesting stuff still happens. I don't mean to like totally undermine the value of serendipity, but you do, but it, but it is a little rudderless. Like you do, mm -hmm. I think I have to have a clearer opinion on why this group gets together. 
So anyways, with Compound, our whole thing was let's really focus on the editing experience because that's the, that's the utility of this group. And so that's kind of what we've centered. We've tried to center most things around. Not everything's centered around it, but just about everything is. And um, so that's one. That's how we thought about that. But I think that the, the opinion of mine that's changed or like the, the, the enlightenment that I've had recently is like you have to actually do a lot of the softer, fuzzier stuff around that to support it. So like mm-hmm. for, for I think we over indexed on the editing, the narrative and like the push for people to edit each other's stuff. And we kind of we did under index on the more community relationship building side where we're making sure that like members are meeting each other. And like members feel like either part, they really are part of a group, not just like a utility where you know they get feedback. Um, even though I think feedback is one way to build relationships. Um, so I think like the thing that we're now thinking about is like, okay, there's actually a lot of like this quote unquote community building stuff that ends up supporting the editing experience, like doing icebreakers with members, uh, pairing people up for one-on-one conversations. Actually, those things end up supporting the editing experience because people will feel more connected to each other and like want to help each other out. Um, but to answer your question, I definitely like under index that under indexed on that earlier. But other than that, I think like we just have a long to do list of improvements we know we can make centered around kind of the editing experience because we believe that's how you become a better writer. Um, and we believe that's just how you do uh, better work, which is like kind of the, the value that we want to bring to our members. Awesome, brother. Um, one question that I wanted to ask you was, who are some writers? Because you spend so much time reading, writing on the internet in general. Who are some writers that people might not have heard about that you really love? Oh my god, I have I have a long list. I should I should like pull up the master list of <laughs> those. Will be uh, in the show notes. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Seriously, I will send you, I will send you the link. I actually, well, ironically, I think uh, not ironically. I'm not just saying this to. Uh, as a thank you for having me on the pod, but I think you're a great example of like a really talented writer. And you've got um, obviously an audience and some momentum building. Um, but I love, I think you intrinsically, cause you've been writing so long, like follow a lot of those editing uh, pieces of advice I shared earlier, like get to the goods, inject a lot of momentum in your writing. I think you have pretty clear intentions with each piece. So I like, I, you know, I've had a blast getting to edit some of your stuff. Um, I think a few people that folks wouldn't know one is, uh, someone named Sarah Campbell and she writes this great newsletter called tiny revolutions, which, you know, I'll send you a, a link to, but, um, she writes, it, it's basically a lot around like mental health and kind of human psychology and her writing style is just very like, she's mastered like the conversational writing style where you feel like you're sitting down at a bar with a friend and she's just like telling you what's up. And I love reading her stuff for that reason. I think it just makes it super approachable. I think it makes it like, um, I, I think it just makes you as a reader, like more receptive to the ideas instead of like, here are five things that you must do to like, mm-hmm. you know, reduce anxiety or whatever. No, it's much more conversational. It's much, it's much more vulnerable and honest. And really I just find her way of writing very helpful. So, um, so Sarah Campbell is one and tiny revolutions is her, is her Substack. Um, another one that jumps to mind is a guy named Tom white, and Tom's substack is called uh, White Noise. And um, what I love about Tom's writing, and I, I look forward to him listening to this, I feel like time, sorry, Tom got into a time machine and like went to the year 1850 and like 
pulled all the coolest words that have gone out of existence since then and like writing style and like brought it back to the future and like injects it in his writing. Like his writing is so fun to read because he's just super, he has like this command of language and like depth of knowledge with the English language that I think is like super rare because I think a lot of online content ends up being kind of homogenous because like, you know, a lot of us are reading the same stuff and copy and pasting each other in a lot of ways. And Tom has like this super fresh, like literary informed voice that is like, I think incredibly rare to see in an online blog. And um, so I just love reading his stuff, white noise. And then one, uh, maybe one more I'll mention is, um, and I'm only saying, I'm saying this because I don't think they have huge audiences yet. There's plenty of folks that like Lenny Rachitsky and Nathan Bashaz and uh, folks that uh, other members that I think, a Jacob guy named Jacob Donnelly, who people already might know. Uh, but one more who, who may not have the huge audience yet is uh, Nick DeWild. And Nick's newsletter is called, I think it's called a Jungle Gym. Um, and Nick kind of has this similarly, I, I guess what would the best way of describing his writing be? Like, he has this very, like, um, I think he's very good with explaining things to folks who might be totally new to a topic. So he's almost like a very good, like, uh, teacher or, um, uh, yeah, I mean, teacher might be the best way of saying it. Like he writes in a way that makes ideas that you probably haven't thought a ton about very approachable and, uh, inviting. And he's been doing this kind of cool thing on his Twitter with where he does like a screenshot essay and they're like short essays. Um, but I really love his approach to his newsletter as well, which goes a little bit deeper where I think like, I don't know, you could just not have thought about a topic like either this post on community building. And I think you'd be able to read his stuff and like very quickly see why it's interesting, very quickly kind of dive into it. And um, so you'd be another writer that I think that's a that's a real skill, being able to make stuff approachable and uh, just not intimidating um, for readers. So those are those are my three nominees. Wow. Well, first of all, I appreciate the kind words and those will all be in the show notes at dannymiranda.com slash stew, S-T-E-W. Um, stew. It's been a pleasure, brother. This is this has been an hour plus and flown by. Please tell everyone where they could find you on the interwebs. Totally. You can you can Google me, Stu Fortier. I think I'm the first result. I'd be shocked if I wasn't. Um, I don't know how many other clones are out there, but <laughs> StuFortier.com is how you can kind of see my blog and and subscribe to my my personal newsletter, appropriately named Stu's letter. Um, and then I'm, I hang out on Twitter as well. So I think I'm just at Stu Fortier. And I think those are like, you know, those are the two best places to find me. And um, I think it's how Dan and I found each other. So uh, I'd love to meet some of your listeners and, and hit me up if you ever want feedback uh, on a blog post. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to future conversations, my man. And reading your yeah, stuff, of course. Truly a privilege. You are an amazing interviewer, and I can't wait to uh, listen to some of your other guests. Thank you, brother. Awesome, my man. Talk to you later. Bye. Cool. Bye. That was my conversation with Stu Fortier. If you enjoyed the conversation, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. Thank you so much for listening until the final seconds. I truly appreciate you. And please, please have a wonderful day until the next one.